0: Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Finance, uh, or as we keep calling it, just Real Estate Finance. This happens to be show number four. Uh, again, we've done show one, two, and three, and we've also, for at least this time, we've, uh, I've posted them, all those shows are now on the internet, so you can watch them live on the internet. Uh, Please remember that you also have the ability now, to, if you you know of anybody that's interested in watching any of the shows, even if they're not in the class, they can just go to the Sacramento City College website, click the Quick Link menu, go down to Distance Ed, and then when they get to the Distance Ed page, all they have to do is click on the little uh, thing on the left-hand side that says uh, ITV Archives. And they can watch any of the shows that we do here, which not only includes my shows, but also includes biology and accounting. So it's a new feature that we have, and it's a great thing to take a look at, especially if you want to see what some of the classes are like before you ever enroll in them. It's a pretty good idea. Anyway, what we're going to do is move on to finishing up what we were discussing the last time. Just to reiterate more or less what we were talking about the last time, we talked about the real estate cycle. The concept of that was we spent quite a bit of time discussing, you know, how the real estate and the business industry as a whole has, has peaks and valleys. We currently now are sort of on the downside from the peak going back down again, waiting for who knows when we'll hit the trough of the bottom of the market. We also talked about different things or factors that influence the value of property. And that was not only just interest rates alone, but we talked about things like uh, uh, migration, people moving to the community, uh, moving in and saying, you know, this is a really great place to live. I want to live and work here or businesses or industries moving to this area. We also talked about the fact that other things that affect the value of your home or homes in general are things like political decisions that our government would make uh, where they decide to uh, maybe – Uh, provide some kind of financial incentives via tax credit or tax uh, special depreciation schedules to uh, uh, to encourage people to build, for example, low-income housing or to build certain types of housing, say, for elderly. So we talked about those different types of political influences. And also about regulation, about how nowadays we're in an industry that is very tightly regulated. There's uh, a lot of things that are put in place to make sure that we don't discriminate against anyone a lot of fair housing laws and that also those all of those financial agencies also have to report back into how they're actually servicing those particular communities. So we discussed all of that. At the end of the time we talked about the fact that we were going to be moving into something called the secondary market. And so I want to talk about whatever the role what we talk about the role of the secondary market and in a minute Bob's going to be so kind as to put up here what's on our plasma screen which is the, uh, just a, a page out of the book, and I'm just going to probably read a little bit, and then I'll start talking about it. Uh, it just basically says, the supply of funds available for investment in real estate mortgages channeled into the primary or the secondary market. The primary market is made up of various lending institutions that exist at the local community, is the most familiar market to the general public. As an example... And uh, what we're talking about here, that primary market is where you go to get your original loan. So in other words, those are the lenders. Those are like, you know, again, I keep saying over and over again, like a Wells Fargo a Bank of America. Those are the people that you normally are dealing with on a regular day-to-day basis. In fact, uh, a lot of times people will say to me, you know, I'm looking at getting a loan to buy a house. Where do I start? And what I'll do is say, don't make any commitments, but one of the things I would probably recommend you do, because you're f- more familiar with those people, is go down to your normal, regular, everyday banker. Go down to your Wells Fargo or your Bank of America. You know, do, go down there when you're shopping for groceries. Sit down. Most of the banks, most of those have, you know, the banks have uh, a bank within the grocery store, which is really comfortable. You put your groceries to the side. <laughs> And you sit there and you can tell them. You can say, you know, I'm looking to buy a house, uh, I, you know, and I'd like to find out what kinds of programs you may have available, what kinds of documents I may need to provide. Could you tell me a little bit about the process? And they're very, very friendly people. I don't care who they are, whether it's Wells Fargo, Bank of America, or anybody. They're usually very friendly, very helpful people, and they'll give you all of that information. That's usually where you start. And another reason why I say that, too, because it's it's a non-threatening thing. You don't feel like you have to make any kind of a commitment. And it also gives you what I commonly like to refer to as a baseline. And what I mean by a baseline is the fact that when you're ever going to go out and buy something or shop for something, it really does help if you've talked to somebody and you have an understanding of what, you know, if you could say to them, well, I went to the bank, according to the Bank of America, if I borrow a 30-year loan, for $300,000, this is how much my interest rates are going to be. This is what my costs are going to be, and this is what my, uh, my payments are going to be. I know that. Now, that sets a level. That gives me a place that I can then go to another institution or another banker, and I can compare one against the other to find out what, what is the best deal that I can get. But that's the, our primary marketplace. Uh, another thing that I want to mention about the primary marketplace, too, is where do they get their money from? Remember, the bank gets its money primarily from deposits that you make. And it also gets its money from not only you as an individual, but it also gets its money from, uh, from business owners that live in the community. If you go down to the bank on uh, during the day, you usually see the guy that runs the donut shop down there with a brown paper bag and a money sack in there. He's depositing money in the bank. That's where the funds come in from. Okay, so that's your primary place, primary source of getting funds. Of course, we have other kinds of lenders uh, that may help you originate those things, such as mortgage bankers or mortgage brokers, but they are usually representing, like a mortgage broker or banker is actually, usually in many cases, representing a bank, like Wells Fargo Bank or Washington Mutual or somebody else. Okay, but those are primary lenders. The other kind of thing that we want to talk about here is the other kind, which is, and I'll see if it's in here. So I'll go through and I'll say the primary market is made up of various institutions that exist in the local community. The most familiar is to the general public. For example, if if a borrower wishes to borrow money to finance the purchase of a home, he or she will seek a loan from the local bank. A savings bank, a mortgage company. The source of the funds for the loan is largely made up of the savings from individuals and businesses in the local area. That's where the money initially comes from. These funds would... So- but the one thing they're trying to emphasize here is they're saying, and I'll read this and I'll explain this these funds would soon dry up if the lending institution were not able to sell some of the mortgages if they had if- that they already made to other investors. So what I- well, all that basically means is this, that if you're a bank and you're sitting there You know, especially in a small town, and where this kind of makes sense is to think about a small town. You all know of a small town somewhere in California, someplace in the country or the world. And you know that that bank exists, and you probably, if it's small enough, you know the people that actually personally deposit money there. And if you think about this, if the only only place you could go get your loans was from that bank, and the only place the bank could get its money to lend you was from those people that deposited money, it would very, very quickly run out of money. It would very quickly run out of money because you're going in and you're depositing your $500 or your 1000 or your $2,000. I'm coming in and I'm wanting to borrow three or $400,000 to buy a house. It's quite a bit different. So they're going to run out of money. So you have to say, well, where in the world are these people going to get their money? So what the banks do is this. They now are in the process of where they originate the loans, What that means is you come in, you fill out all the appropriate paperwork with them. They'll ask you for things like your financial statements, your income tax statements, your W-2 statements, all those things. They'll get all that information from you. They may actually also be the ones that will work with their people in ordering appraisals, doing the initial underwriting. They'll take care of all of that. What they do then is then when you finally buy the house, they're the ones that will actually send the money over to the escrow company and you know pay off any existing loans and essentially pay for the house. What they do then is that they take those loans that they've created and they package them together. And this is maybe oversimplistic, but what they do is they package them together. And what they do is they sell them on the secondary market. The secondary market, as we're going to talk about it, is made up primarily of three agencies that we'll talk about in a little more detail. One of them is Fannie Mae, the other one is Jenny Mae, and the third is Freddie Mac. And what these agencies do is that they buy these loans from these lenders. Then what they do is they turn around and they give the lender back some money, Hopefully, it's not only the money that they lent out, but some additional money which helps them. That's their profit. And they go and they re-loan the, process, reloan the money again. Now, banks can sell all their loans like that, or they could possibly maybe be picky and choosy. They could say, you know, I'm going to keep all the choice loans or whatever, and I'm going to sell the other ones. But in other words, that's where they sell the loans to. That provides for them what we call liquidity, a place that it's liquid moves that they can sell, they can get money from. Okay? So anyway, we're going to go on from here. Okay, so that's the secondary market. Okay, um, just talk a little bit about the secondary market um, a little bit more. Um, A couple things that the secondary market does, too, is it provides standards. And I'll talk about that in more detail in a minute, but it provides standards. And what you really want to think about is this, is that when you sell those loans to people you know, to that secondary market, those loans, actually the way that it works is like this. Those institutions actually go out and sell securities on, let's say, the market, like the stock market. They receive money from that, and the collateral or the stuff that they pledge to say, this is what, you know, what we're selling that on is based on the on the loans that they currently own, okay? That's where they basically get their money from. Now when they do that, the people that buy those loans or buy those things, if you can imagine now what we're doing is we're spreading that risk all over the place. So not one institution or one individual or one financial group is taking the risk. So what that means is that if Pat Hogarty's house goes into foreclosure, that has not, does not have a dramatic impact on it like it would if it was one lender that had that foreclosure. Okay. So that's the idea, it provides that kind of stability. Now, um, what, what I want to kind of emphasize here, and I'm, I'm, I'm not from this here, I'm going to come back on camera here in a minute, is the fact that what they do, what these secondary markets have done, is they provide what we call standards. And what we mean by standards is this. If I'm going to sell something to somebody, and the purchasers of that are going to be all over the country, all over the world, I have to have a standard that I have to work towards so that if somebody is sitting in New York, they can take a look at the mortgage that they're going to buy and understand how I came up with the loan value or how I came up with the appraised value or how I qualified the client. So, for example, if you're going to take your loan application from a borrower, the form that you're going to fill out, for that loan application is going to be called a Freddie Mac Fannie Mae Freddie Mac standard form application. It's form 1003 the information that they're going to be asking you for is going to be the same information they would ask from anybody else anywhere in the country so in other words when they say to you for example I want to know your full name your full address I want to know where you work I want to know who your employers name is I want to know what your assets are those same questions are being asked from, for, from everybody, whoever gets a loan through them. Everybody is being asked the same questions. If they ask you, for example, to supply uh, your pay statements for the last two pay periods to show that you make a certain amount of money, that's a standard they ask of everybody. No matter whoever applies for the loan, everybody gets asked the same question. When they do a credit check, everybody goes through the same credit check. And hopefully you guys are kind of getting the idea that it's standard. Everybody is standard. Same thing with an appraisal. If I'm going to have an appraisal done on the property, the appraisal has to be done by a licensed real estate appraiser. It cannot be done by just somebody that happens to have their name and they call themselves an appraiser. It has to be licensed to the standards. Now what that means is now we have something that everybody understands. Everybody knows when they pick up that loan that that criteria has been followed, and that's the quality of that loan. And therefore, they can make a decision and say, I will buy that loan because I know all of that information is correct. And if you think about it, it could be a nightmare if if we didn't have a standard. If you went down and all of a sudden you were getting ready to buy loans and you went to Bank of America and they have one standard, and they ask you know, all, you know, borrowers for one, some information, and you went to Wells Fargo, and they asked some other, different kind of information, you went to Washington Mutual, and they had a different kind of information, it would be very, very difficult to be able to compare them, whether w- what you were getting was accurate or inaccurate. But if everybody fills out the same paperwork, then you know that it's all the same. That's the concept. And then when you get ready to sell those loans, those loans are all marching to the same standard. That's the concept behind it. Okay. All right. Now, when the loan is made, uh, as they talk about on this one page, the two things that they look at when they make these loans, when they make these loans to these borrowers, is they qua- there's two things that they qualify. The first thing that they do is they qualify the borrower. Now, what does that mean? That means that when you fill out that loan application and you put your income down. And all your income sources, they are looking at the fact of whether you, have, whether you have the capacity, if you earn enough money, to be able to make the monthly payments. So that's why they will turn around and say, okay, where do you work? How much money do you earn? How long have you lived there? What are your car payments? Uh, on and on and on, because they 're saying you know you, you know what it, it wouldn't be doing justice to the person that 's buying the house it wouldn't be doing justice to us to have somebody buy a house and have maybe fifty to seventy percent of their income just going to make the house payment where there 's no more money left to buy food, clothing, shelter, feed the kids, or anything else so they 'll have some kind of standard that they're going to set now in a lot of cases it may be something like hey you can you're, you're, you can have a house payment that exe- exceeds 25 percent of your income if it exceeds 25 percent we're not going to make the loan or 30 percent so they'll have a standard again that's to protect you and to protect them and to protect the investors the second thing they're going to look like as the borrower itself is they're going to look at your credit history they're going to look at your credit rating and they're going to make a decision on whether or not they're going to make the loan based on how, 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 if you will, how good your credit rating happens to be. And what I look at is is the first one is what your capability is to pay your loan, your income. The other one is your willingness. In other words, credit rating is more like a willingness. If you're somebody or or your client is somebody that has a low credit rating, which always can be improved, typically that means that they've made some poor decisions, uh, they've uh, bought stuff that they shouldn't have bought, or they've been talked into something they shouldn't have bought, purchased, or they've maybe sat there and said, you know what, I've got a choice. I can either make the car payment or, you know, the monthly payment, whatever it is, car payment, MasterCard payment, or I can go ahead and go to the game on the weekend. And the people that have the cre- low credit rating are the ones that go, ah, forget about it, I won't bother making the car payment, I'll go to the ball game. So what ends up happening Monday morning rolls around, and they can't make the payment. That shows up in their credit history, and all of a sudden their credit rating goes down. Now you may say, well, I don't care about that. Well, the fact is, is that as your credit rating gets worse, or your client's credit rating gets worse, the amount of interest that they have to pay on loan goes higher and higher. So, for example, if I have going and I have a very, very good credit rating, I may get an interest rate on a loan in today's market, let's say it may be 6 say 6%. If somebody else has a poorer credit rating, they may have to pay 65 or 7% or 8%. They'd be, still be able to get a loan, but it's going to be a higher interest rate that they're going to have to pay. Okay, so that's the individual looking at. And we may also not only look at the person, we may, for example, a lot of times people will buy things jointly. So it could be looking at the husband's income and the wife's income. Or you may possibly have a situation where it might be a uh, father and son buying a house or a mother and daughter or two, two guys, or two gals, or whatever. So they'll look at both people's income, okay? So that's why you always want to make sure that both people have really good credit ratings. The second thing that they're going to look at when you're looking to buy the house is to qualify the property. And what that means is this, is that means going out and doing an appraisal on the property. And what they're really looking at when they do that is they want to make sure that the property is actually worth what you say or you you say it's worth if you're getting a loan or if you're buying the property what you're paying for it and in reality what they want to do is to make sure that there's going to be that the value is there that there's going to be enough equity that in the event that you do not make the monthly payments and they have to sell the property you know, foreclose on it, that there's going to be enough money coming back to be able to pay off the the loan that they're making to you and on top of that be able to pay off any late payments or extra fees or whatever. So they're going to look at that. That's why appraisal becomes a very, very important issue in property. And typically right now, I think probably most appraisers are talking about the fact that, uh, you know, maybe last year they had a house that they appraised and it was maybe – they said it was worth $350,000, and this year they're coming back and they're saying that, no, the property's not worth 350 dollars anymore. It's worth $300,000 because the market has slowed down quite a bit. So, I mean, it's a big appraisal is a big issue. And the appraisal industry itself is, has been continuously working on tighter and tighter rules and regulations and training and education, for example. And nowadays, if you want to become a, a real estate appraiser where you can do your own appraisals on residential property, and sign them off yourself, you have to have over two thousand hours' worth of experience before you can even get the license to do that okay and then you 're limited on what you can appraise, and the reason why you 're doing that is because what they want to do is they want to safeguard the community uh, safeguard the lenders that they that when you say that that value of that property is three hundred thousand that it's really worth that much money okay Appraisal also becomes important too. Because you will also have people. A uh, last thing is you'll have people out to move from another community, and they'll move. For example, like when we people move from say back not back east, but the Midwest, Oklahoma, Texas, and they move out here, and they get ready to buy a house, they have what we commonly refer to as sticker shock. I mean, they've moved from where they live. They come out here and they're thinking, oh, I'm going to be able to buy a really nice house for maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars. And they go out and they look around and they're finding out that they can maybe, if they're lucky, buy a small little townhouse condominium or a one-bedroom house. Conversely, if you move from here to, say, Oklahoma City and you're used to living in a little condominium here and you go down there and you start looking around, you're going to find houses for sale that maybe might be like a three- or four-bedroom house, three-car garage, brick house, on a third of an acre, and they're selling it for maybe uh, $200,000 today, as I speak. So when you go down there, you may actually overpay for a house because you're used to the prices in Sacramento. So the idea of having an appraisal down there would be the fact of informing you that you're not overpaying for that market. That house back there may be worth 200000 Over here may very well be worth you know five six $600,000, just based on where it's physically located in a nice area, by the way. Okay, so, um, again, um, I'm looking here, okay, agencies of the secondary market, on this page, they call out three of them that we'll talk about in a little bit more detail. Um, The first one that we hear a lot about is Fannie Mae, which is the Federal National Mortgage Association Fannie Mae, okay? Okay. The second one that we're going to talk about is Ginnie Mae, which is the Government National Mortgage Association, I'm going to show you their websites and some of the other stuff when we get done. And the third one is called the Federal um, Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation. Okay, those are three of the secondary agencies that purchase or are involved in some way or another in the secondary market. And a couple of these things I, I underlined here because I thought that it was something that I, it was important that I maybe reiterate or hopefully it comes across. Yeah, it does on the TV, okay. It says the secondary market is able to function as it does because of the standardized, as I talked about before, standardized underwriting criteria applied by those agencies. Underwriting criteria as used to qualify the borrow and the property. Remember, that's what I was saying about they all march to the same kind of criteria. Okay, they all use the same tools, so it's so that it's well understood. You can be in New York, and the forms are the same. <laughs> okay, um, uh, every mortgage issue <clears throat> issued by each individual lender must conform to the secondary market. That also includes, like, when you go to the bank, a lot of times you'll hear about something called a conforming loan and a non-conforming loan. In fact, if you go to the bank. On the weekend, and you see an interest rate that's posted on a sign, I'm thinking about like walking into a, a, a Bank of America or a Wells Fargo bank, and you look and you see a sign and it says, our home loans are at, and they quote you a percent, they say 6.5%. If you look at the itty-bitty, teensy-weensy, teeny-weeny little writing down the bottom of the little flyer or the sign, it'll say for conforming loans. And what that conforming means, it has to do with a limit on the loan. Currently, right now, conforming is any loan that the value of it is at least, it's got to be $417,000 or less if it's a single-family home, and that's in this particular area. If it's over $417,000, it's called non-conforming loan, and that's called a jumbo loan. It's in a different criteria. Typically, jumbo loans may have a higher interest rate because it's considered to be a higher risk than the non-conforming loans would be, okay? So anyway, going on from there, it says, these standards assure a uniform quality control which inspires confidence in purchasers of the mortgage-backed securities. Very, very important because we have had over the years a number of absolute total fiascos in which you know, there was saving, you know, and, and I can remember, um, you know, the savings and loan industry. I mean, we, we ended up with properties all over the place that, you know, they had no value or, or very little value. The underwriting standards and the way they were appraised were terrible. And what ended up happening is banks or savings and loans ended up with a lot of properties that were, you know, in many cases, worthless. So what's happened is they've created these standards so that everybody follows them, and they say we know what you know. You know we know what these standards are like, and we're going to come in and check and make sure you follow these standards. Very very important. Okay, the uh, going back to the Federal uh, National uh, Mortgage Association. Again, I'll just point out a couple things here, and I'm sure you can read it on your own. But basically, what it does is it gives you a little bit of the history of what. How it got started. It started out as just a government organization. You know, a lot of these start out as a plain out now government organization. It says the Federal National Mortgage Association was created in 1938 as the first government-sponsored secondary market institution. So that's when it started. By the way, you see a lot of stuff coming out after the Depression. You know, after the 1929 1930, like FHA came into being in 1934, you see a lot of things where we're constantly trying to stabilize and standardize the marketplaces. I see quite a bit of legislation starts in the 30s. It was originally formed as a wholly owned government corporation. While the specific purpose of Fannie Mae was to provide a secondary market for FHA-insured mortgages, Fannie Mae did not start buying FHA mortgages on a large scale until 1948, and at the same time, Fannie Mae was also authorized to provide uh, purchase of VA-guaranteed loans, okay? So that's where those types of loans were being sold. Today, uh, Fannie Mae is not a government organization anymore. Uh, I'm not sure where this says this in here, but basically what's ended up happening is Fannie Mae is still, What well, says here, Fannie Mae went under uh, several reorganization. is now a privately owned and managed corporation, although it is still supervised by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, okay? So, you know, you see the history of what, you know, the steps that it's had to go through. But, again, to form this and provide a specific role, that's what the purpose of Fannie Mae happens to be. Uh, down below, um, this is where they're telling you about the securities. It says Fannie Mae Funds its operation by selling securities which are backed by its pool of mortgages to the public. So essentially what they do is they have a security, like let's say a bond, okay, a bond that they would have, and they say this bond is worth $10,000, and the security for that bond is these mortgages that we bought from Bank of America. That's the concept behind it. So what they do is they sell these bonds. That's how they raise money to get funds to operate their business on a regular basis. She always had to say, where's the money coming from? Uh, it buys mortgages from lenders. Lenders who wish to sell loans to Fannie Mae are required to own a certain amount of stock in Fannie Mae, the required amount being based upon the principal balance of the mortgage loans. Okay. So anyway, that gives you an idea on how that basically operates. Uh, the next organization that they talk about in here is something called Ginny May, okay? Ginny May. Uh, Ginny May is a. Uh, it's a government organization. It's in the secondary market. It has a little bit different of, or it has quite a bit of a different role. It says the government, uh, National Mortgage Association of Ginnie Mae was created with the passage of the Housing and Urban uh, Development Act in 1968 it is a wholly owned government corporation, which in effect replaced Fannie Mae when Fannie Mae became privately owned. So that it's what its purpose is. Okay? And I think down here I gave a little bit. I said it's uh, a primary function of Ginnie Mae is to promote investment by guaranteeing the payment of principal and interest on FHA and VA mortgages. So, again, that's where an investor, you know, and when we say investor, we're not talking about like Pat Hogarty. We're talking about pension plans, profit sharing plans, CalPERS, Calsters, stuff like that, big organizations. This is to make sure that they're going to continue to get paid their payments on a monthly basis or their interest or whatever. Okay, very, very important. All right, and uh, they show a website here for it, and I'll show you this in a minute so you know where that's particularly located. Okay, the next one that they talk about in this area, if you will, is uh, Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, or uh, you know, and this is the third one, which is called Freddie Mac. So you have Fannie Mae. Jenny May and Freddie Mac, okay, you know. And if you ever wonder, you know, there's a lot of information, by the way, in these chapters, a lot of information at their website. Now, I think as I was going through and getting ready for today, I just think to myself, you know what, that's a lot to kind of keep in your head, and basically that's why they make books, (laughs) so you can go back and look it up, which you're really going to be concerned with in something like in this, which you should be doing as a real estate agent or professional to know that these organizations exist to know what their purposes are, to understand what's happening with them, both politically and business-wise, to know how the secondary market is working, which has a direct effect on possibly what interest rates may be. So that's why you're going to want to know. I think I mentioned the last time when you go, like if you're a member or go, or like you're in the internship class we have, and you go to... uh, the Sacramento Association of Realtors uh, weekly meetings. You'll see the people from the Finance Committee get up and talk about what's happening specifically, maybe, with one of these organizations. Uh, you know, what they're buying, what they're selling, how it's going to affect the market. Okay? And so here it gives you a little bit more. It says the uh, Fannie Mae, also known as Fannie Mae, was created through the Emergency Home Refinance Act in 1970. Initially, Fannie Mae was a nonprofit, federally chartered institution. Which was controlled by the Federal Home Loan Bank System. Its primary function was to aid savings and loans who were hit particularly hard by the recession of 1969 and 1970, which was one of our recessions. Uh, Fannie Mae helped SNLs re, um, acquire additional funds for a lending and mortgage market by purchasing mortgages they already held. Fannie Mae, or Freddie Mac, was also authorized to deal with FHA, VA, and conventional mortgages. And in 1989, Fannie, uh, Freddie Mac became a private corporation as basically operates in a matter similar to uh, Fannie Mae. Okay? So they all get created as a result of some problem, and they're all providing some kind of a function in order to make things work. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to kind of flip over to the um, Blackboard website and I'm going to just show you some things that I have for you at your own leisure to look up because one of the things that's important is that you know that these organizations exist you know where to find some additional information about them you know where to do some additional research if you want to what I did is in blackboard what I did right down here on the left hand side is I have our website links for you know, for the class. And the first one I'm going to be pulling up because we're in chapter two and it deals with the real estate cycle and the secondary market. As so I'm going to open up chapter two. And what I'm going to do is I want to show you a couple things in here that I thought were important that I didn't get a chance the last time to show you. And then I'm going to show you the Fannie Mae and the Jenny Mae and all that. And the first one is uh, I'm going to click on this, which is some research that comes out of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. And uh, let me see. I need to change something here. Hold on just one second. Uh, I need to go in here. I need to change that page. I'll do this very quickly. Website links, chapter 2. And I'll go in here. And I want this to, so it opens up in its own uh, own page. So I'm going to do that. You guys never see this stuff because what it does otherwise will open up in a frame. And it becomes very hard to see. So I'm going to go back here. I'll go to website links, go to Chapter 2, and then go here, and hopefully it's going to open up in its own window. Yes, it does. Okay. So anyway, this, if you remember the last time we were talking about the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, which happens to be the bank that's in our particular area, Uh, what I wanted to do is I thought that this was something that may interest you. What it did is it talked about the real estate cycle. About the cycle. In other words, where are we in the cycle based on the research that they did? So what they do here is they have an economic letter that they put out. And what it does is it goes through and it talks about what's going on in the market. And I'll just read the first part of it. I do not not know if I can make this text any bigger. It doesn't look like I can. No, I can't. So I'll go back and fix that. Go to text size. Okay. Okay. But basically what they say, if you can read this, it's just saying, all I want you to get out of this is to go there, and you can see this. This is talking about the current housing market based on research studies that the Federal Reserve has done. It's a very, very short little economic newsletter. But what it does is it goes through. It essentially starts out in the beginning and talking about the current market conditions in for the residential market in the United States. The second thing that it does, as the book had talked about, but I wanted to point out, it talks about how to measure that real estate activity. What's going on in the market? What do you look at? So it talks about things like, I'll read a little bit here. It says, the main indicator of the quality of new housing supply to the economy is the residential fixed investment series from the National Income Product Accounts. Uh, so it talks about all of that information there. The next thing, it goes down and it provides some charts so you can take a look at it. Then it starts talking about forecasting, in other words, forecasting the downturns that are coming or that have come, being able to forecast or look forward, which should affect not only us as real estate agents or salespeople or brokers, but us as homeowners. You know, what is basically happening? What are they looking at as far as being able to forecast that? Um, So they talk about that, and then they go through and talk about the different charts, uh, you know, about new housing starts. So on and so forth. So I thought that that was something that you may want to take a look at when you get a chance that will talk about how to forecast the housing market. I thought that was interesting. Okay? And uh, probably you will become very, very interested in it, especially if you have your own house and you're wondering, you know, is my house going to go up in value, down in value? I just paid $300,000. and The neighborhood says it's only worth two hundred fifty. What's going to happen in the future? You're going to want to know how, what this stuff is. Okay, the next one is Fannie Mae. Fannie Mae is the first one that they talk about in the book. This happens to be their website. Okay, I'm going to kind of maximize this up here. Uh, this has just a lot of the literature that you'll see with, when they talk about Fannie Mae, if you want to know cer- certain things like about Fannie Mae. I wish they would make their text so I could size it. I can't size it for some unknown reason here because they they make it more like a, a, a They're using what they call style sheets to do this, which is uh, not allowing me to control it. But one thing that happens under About Fannie Mae is this right here where they talk about loan limits. This is the conforming and non-conforming rate that I was talking about right here. So it says, as of 2006, single-family mortgage loan limits, and they have them based on the different sizes of the property so for example we're talking first of all they're identifying the fact that they're talking about first mortgages so these are first mortgages on the house meaning that they're going to be in first position to you know in the event of a foreclosure on a single family one family house the loans that will be what we call uh, conforming loans are going to be anything from four hundred and seventeen thousand dollars or below Now, what the significance of that happens to be for some people, for some clients, is that if they've bought a house, say, a couple years ago, and maybe they had a jumbo loan at that time, and maybe they were paying extra money for that jumbo loan because it exceeded that conforming rate. Because the conforming rate, there's been times that it's been... You know that like last year, I think it was like down in the $300,000 range. Okay, but as it moves up, it means that that kind of a loan moves up higher, where it's eligible for a lower interest rate than it was previously. So, for example, maybe last year what a jumbo was considered to be a jumbo loan, which was maybe $375,000, this year is not considered to be a jumbo loan anymore. It's an ordinary conforming loan, which means it may qualify for the lower rate. Also, another thing, too, is is that they talk about the loan limits. It says two-family, three-family loans, and four-family. What they're talking about here is they're talking about like if you buy a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex. And what's important about that is that some people, when they initially get into the real estate market, especially if they're trying to build their estate, they may say, you know what, for the first couple years, I'm going to work really hard. I'm building my estate. I'm going to buy a duplex. I'm going to live on this side. I'm going to rent this side out, okay? You know, that kind of a thing. Well, these these loans are, if you have a two two unit, three unit, or four unit is what you're talking about. So as you notice, the loan limits go up as you go. So it'll go anywhere from a two-family is 533850 to a high for four units is eight hundred one, eight hundred 801950 okay? They also talk here about the uh, second mortgages, okay? So that's uh, I wanted to kind of point that out to you. There's a lot of different information in here, a lot of information. uh, If you want to do things like understanding what um, Fannie Mae is about, how it operates, how it's currently organized, who runs it, all that stuff is here at their website, okay? The next thing that I wanted to do, let me go back here, Oh, wait a minute. I think I can close this window. I wanted to show you that we had a link in here for Jenny May. And again, when you look at this and you look at the book, this is directly from their website. This is Jenny May. Okay, this is the Jenny May website. And again, you can go here. And if you want to know about Jenny May, it's kind of laid out uh, similar to the way Fannie Mae was, but it talks all about how they're organized, what their mission is why they exist, home ownership guide, calculations, all that kind of stuff is located right here, okay? And that'll all be on the test, by the way. you guys paying attention? (laughs) Okay, the last one that I wanted to show you that's in here is something called Freddie Mac, okay? And Freddie Mac is the last organization that they talk about. Again, they exist, Um, It'll, you're able to go in here and find out information about Freddie Mac. Uh, also, all of these also have consumer informations like, you know, like how to buy a house, how to go about buying a house, how to protect your interests, all that kind of stuff is located at these sites to help you out. Okay, so if you want to know something about who they are, um, you know, their mission, all that stuff is right here at their website. Okay. So that kind of covers that. Okay, now I'm going to go down through a few more of these things here just to show you. I have another thing right here that this is something that is not a website, but I thought it was important because of the fact that it is a wonderful resource for you to find definitions for stuff, and it's called Wikipedia. What it is is it's an online encyclopedia that you can go and look up any definitions you want, and it has full-blown definitions, charts, graphs, and everything. So I put through this in here, and if you'll notice when you take a look at it, this is about Fannie Mae, but I put the source down here that it was Wikipedia that I got it from. And what Wikipedia does is that they go down here and they explain the entire history, and they also give you links in here to everything that they're talking about. So if you want to, for example, want to go to uh, uh, if you want to know about something like mortgage-backed securities, and that's a link that they have in there, you click the button, it'll take you to the page on mortgage-backed securities. It's a wonderful resource to go back and forth. One of the things I've used it a lot for is legal descriptions, being able to know what the definition of meets and bounds were, government survey, all that. It's really a great website. And what's interesting about this, too, is that the way it's maintained, it's maintained by the public. So, in other words, you could go on the website and contribute to the website and add additional stuff if you wanted to, okay? Like if you had a further definition, and I mean it has everything, it's not just real estate. This could be about any topic you want to know about. You want to know about cars, planes, motorcycles, makeup, perfume, you name it, it's on Wikipedia. And it's just a really good website to find any kind of definition. I love going there because it helps me get started on any kind of a topic that I'm looking for. Helps me in my research. Helps me get going with it. So anyway, that's again in Blackboard, okay, for you guys to look at. A couple other things that I wanted to put up here that I thought was appropriate at this time was uh, some associations that are are involved with... uh, Again, associations are professional organizations that you as an agent or you as a member of the financial community can join. These are the people that are involved in the the mortgage business or in the finance business. So what I did is I put up a couple links here so you can see what they are. We have the uh, California Bankers Association. Okay. So, for example, uh, if you are interested in finding out more about banking or a career in banking, as an example... You know, you go to the bank nowadays, it's kind of funny. I mean, it must have been like three, four years ago. I went to the bank, and the lady that was initially there, I think she started out as a teller. That's how I got to know her. And then the next thing you know, found out she used to take care of getting home loans. You know, so I had done a refinance with her. In the meantime, she's going to Sac State. She's a student. She's just going to school. And the last time I spoke to her, she runs the bank now. Okay, so she sort of worked her way up, and she's not very old. I mean, she's got to be maybe 26, 27 years old. She started there and worked her way up, but I think if you're talking about real estate, the reason why I throw these things in is that could be an avenue that you may want to pursue, where you go to work for a bank or a lending institution, you start out in one place, and because you have the real estate background, that can help you move up. So she was doing all all the, uh, the loans through Wells Fargo. Okay, so that's an area that you may be interested. In. But anyway, this is the California Bankers Association. For those of you that are interested, it talks about the association, their meetings, um, all that kind of stuff that I think is important for you if you're interested. Another one that I have up here is something called the Mortgage Bankers Association of America, which is another place that you can go and get more information if you're interested in um, you know, doing this as a career. And remember when I say a career, you know, you can take a class like this and then maybe possibly get into a lot of other fields besides selling houses. You might be somebody that's originating mortgages. You might be somebody that's working in the underwriting department, work for a title company, an escrow company, an appraiser, on and on and on. So that's why I'm trying to share this stuff with you so that you know that, you know, this knowledge can be transferred to those areas. Yeah, all those banks now and saving uh, banks and lenders are all got people out of making loans or working in those particular departments. So, again, you can go in here and find out about them. And I think I have, let me see, we did the California Bank, and then I think finally the last one down here was the American Bankers Association, which I think will come up here in a minute. Yeah. So, again, this is another one that you can go and do more research and find out about, you know, careers in, in, in real estate lending or real estate financing or what have you, okay? And so, consequently, I get, think we're, as far as this goes, I'm getting close to the end of this particular chapter. We may actually move on and start the next chapter in a minute or start talking about it. I'm going to put on the document camera here one more thing that I kind of want to emphasize to you all and I think is really important throughout this whole thing. And that is the real purpose of the secondary market, okay? Remember, the secondary market is a place where the lenders can sell the mortgages that they create, which allows them to have liquidity. Think of it as almost sort of a little bit analogous to like a stock market. You know, the reason why... Like for example, in the stock market, the reason why people like stocks, besides the fact that they may go up in value, is the fact that they can pick up the broker, or pick up the telephone, or get on the computer and say, "Sell IBM now and send me the money," and bang, it's sold. And they can get their money. They can get their, you know, they can get their money back. It provides liquidity. There's somebody there that's willing to buy at some fa- on some price. They're willing to buy. Well, the same concept of this secondary market is a way where those banks can take that pool of mortgages and turn around and say, you know what, we don't have any more money to lend, let's sell them, get some more money, and repeat the whole process, and let's maybe make our money by originating mortgages, okay? The other thing that we really want to emphasize here, very, very important part, is to say that the secondary market has an enormous influence on the primary market enormous. In other words, if they change something, those primary lenders, which is the Wells Fargo and Bank of America, they're dead. They can't do anything unless the secondary market is operating properly. Uh, Not only because the increased availability of funds that it provides, but also because of the standards of the quality it imposes on the lenders. So in other words, lenders cannot make up the rules as they go along. They have to follow a set of standards. If they want to participate in that secondary market, they have to follow these rules. That also will sometimes, in some cases, drive you a little crazy because what you'll do is you'll wonder why a lender is asking you for something. They'll say, uh, you know, like, why did the lender ask me for another pay statement? Why did the lender ask me for a letter proving I have child support? Why did the lender want me to prove that I had alimony or a retirement? It's not the lender that's requiring it. It's the secondary market. They're saying, wait a minute, old Pat said that he was getting a certain amount of money coming from this resource. We need proof in writing that that actually does exist. And so you'll see see that come across on their case. This is because lenders wish to be able to sell their loans to the secondary agents, they must follow the underwriting guidelines of those agencies. They must. If they do a loan and they don't follow those processes or procedures, they're stuck with that loan. They can't do anything with it. They have to put it in what they call their portfolio. They can't do it. <laughs> They're stuck. So they have to follow those guidelines. And, again, what the whole purpose of this is to make the market more stable, you know, and to spread that risk. If you could imagine, uh, you know, if you had some sort of a catastrophe you know, such as like we have down in Louisiana with, with Katrina and the storms. If, if, if all the people, you know, that work down there lost their jobs and they all depended just exclusively on those banks, they'd be in big trouble. But those loans that are made down there were made, sold on the secondary market, and that risk is spread out amongst a lot of people. So there's not one person. That's why we can withstand some of these big shocks, because it's not like it's devastating one particular group, it's spreading that risk around. Very, very important factor. So anyway, I think that takes care of that particular chapter. I think I'm going to mention a few things that are going to be coming up in the next chapter because we have a few more minutes. Um, what we're going to be doing the next time is talking about uh, what's referred to as sources of primary uh, sources of funds for the primary market. You know, where do they basically get their money, that primary market? Where does the money come from? So we're going to be talking about that and uh, going into that detail. They talk here about uh, starting out talking about uh, traditional direct lenders. In other words, lenders that make the loans directly. You go to the bank, the bank gives you the money. So we'll be talking about that. Uh, Next thing that we're going to be talking about that day is something called savings and loans. Okay, savings and loans. Savings and loans, in a lot of cases, were started basically for the fact of uh, helping people buy houses. Okay, in other words, residential property. What's happened over the years that's sort of interesting is the fact that, you know, all of these institutions had very, very tightly regulated specific roles. You know, if you went to a bank, the bank took care of your money and lent you money. But maybe at one time they didn't make home loans. They didn't sell stocks. They didn't sell bonds. They didn't do a lot of things. So what we've started to do is we've seen a lot of these institutions are doing, you know, you can go to a bank now, and you, if you have a business, you know, in the past, you couldn't. But if you go to a bank now, you can do your own personal banking with them. They can handle your own payroll for your company. They possibly can make your home loan. They can make you a business loan. Uh, they may be able to even be connected to be able to provide insurance. There's a lot of different things that they can work with. Okay, So the, the roles of them have expanded cr- considerably. So we'll talk about savings and loans. Uh, we'll talk about a couple of these acts, financial institutions and in the Reform Act of uh, 1989. So we'll be talking about those, these different kinds of financial acts that happened and why they were initiated and why we have them. Usually, any time you have an act that comes into place, it usually means because something went wrong, something financially went wrong, okay, or they found out that whatever the agencies were, weren't properly conducting business, so they created some kind of an act. An act means something created by Congress to rectify the problem, so that's why it's important, okay? Um, We're going to talk a little bit about something called commercial banks, Commercial banks are typically uh, banks that are dealing with, uh, as they say here, demand deposits. Demand deposits mean I go down, I put my money, I put my card down, I say, give me my money. Uh, Commercial banks usually are also doing like loans to businesses. They may be lending money to businesses for things like to meet payroll, to, um, to, uh, to to finance inventories to handle their accounts receivable, in other words, to lend money against accounts receivable they may have. That's what commercial banks do, so we'll talk about those. We are also going to talk about something called credit unions, okay, which is another kind of financial institution and what they basically do. Credit unions typically in the past have been, uh, I know when I first joined, it was the credit union I belonged to, which doesn't, it's been merged and. Uh, over the years was Mather credit union essentially what it is is it was a group it you know if you if you belong to it you had to be a member of the military or civil service and working for them and consequently over the years in order to cat continue to capture more marketplaces like anymore it's like do you know of anybody you know going from where well if you're not a member of the military you can't join it's like do you know of anybody that's ever been a member do you know have you ever seen a soldier <laughs> You know, so in other words, they've basically expanded that because what's happened is, is the military bases have closed. You know, they, run, they want to stay in business, and they're running out of clients, so they start expanding who, who can belong to it. But credit unions also have limited roles in what they do. You go there, these are the places that are usually you're getting like share-secure loans, short-term loans, uh, you know, like you want to borrow some money you know, to buy a car or buy a motorhome or buy a motorcycle, they do do, and depending upon the credit union, some of them do do mortgages or are involved in it. Some of the other ones are not. So it really depends upon their activity. A lot of them usually are lending money, uh, you know, for car uh, like cars, commodities like that is what they're buying. Okay, so we'll talk about those guys. Okay. Um, we're also, as time goes by, and I'm just doing a quick review here, we're going to be talking about something called pension funds. Uh these are going to be under the category of indirect lenders. Pension funds means that people like retirement plans, like CalPERS or the public California Public Employees Retirement System or CalSTRS, the Teacher's Retirement System, or any large retirement system, they have to invest their money in something. If you think about it, they're collecting your you know your your deposits on a, on a weekly or a monthly basis for your retirement plan what they're doing is they're guaranteeing the fact that they're going to give you some amount of income in the future they have to invest their money somewhere so what the pension plans do is typically they invest in things like stocks and bonds and mutual funds they also will invest in like uh, uh, mortgages okay and also too they will also make large extremely large loans So, for example, you may find out that a shopping center, the loan on a shopping center, is made by uh, Mutual of Omaha, or New York Life, or Metro Life. In other words, they're large companies that are making direct loans to them. So we'll talk about those guys. Okay. And so we're getting close to the end now. I just kind of want to let you know that we're going to be talking about that the next time. Uh, And... uh, Again, I would recommend a couple things that you need to do. Make sure that you are downloading and doing, working on the study guide for the exam. Very, very important. Remember in my classes, you're not supposed to be getting those terrible 85s and 90s on exams. We want to get 100 on those exams. There's no reason why you shouldn't be getting 100 on the exam if you're not, you know, just download the study guide and work on it. Uh, very, very important to do. Take a look at that exam schedule. Make sure that you're keeping up what's going on with the reading and everything. But it is important though that we prepare real well for that exam. Okay, I hate giving those low 85 scores. That's terrible. You hey, gotta get them up there. Gotta get the scores up there. Okay, with that I want to thank you very much. And this is the end of show four and we'll see you back here the next time for show number five.